The Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, everyone. Entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, human beings, and aliens, if you're listening. Welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Gil Barak, president and CEO of Collier's US. And Collier's, if you don't know, is one of the largest global commercial real estate firms on the planet. We reveal Gil's love of the card game Blackjack, but then quickly get into his tireless work ethic and how he earned his way to the position he is in today. Also, as the world is hopefully on the back end of the COVID pandemic, Gil discusses his thoughts on the impact COVID made in the commercial real estate world and the positives of this impact in the future. This was a fun conversation for me, and I know you listeners will enjoy it too. That said, here's my conversation with Gil Barak. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in, and Cleanse on the Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle. But I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Gil Barak. Welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Thank you. Hi, Rami. So currently, you're president and CEO of Collier's United States, which is one of the largest commercial real estate companies in the world. And I got to imagine, especially during a pandemic, that's a pretty busy job. But there's some fun topics that we're going to cover today. The first, however, has nothing to do with commercial real estate, Gil. I found out, a uh, little birdie told me, that you love the card game Blackjack. I actually was just in Las Vegas not too long ago and lost my ass playing blackjack. But I would love to hear what that love is about. And if you could tell the listeners why it's so intriguing for you. And is it the strategy skill or the social competitiveness or all the above? That is so funny that you know that, first of all, and good on you. Yeah, I love that game. I don't gamble particularly big stakes, although as I drink a little more, and as I win a little more, then I might get a little more. I've been known to get a little more aggressive, right? When it's not on my dime and my inhibitions are down a little bit. So, but it is the social aspect. And I started playing it with my college buddies, you know, 30 years ago. I went to college back east and we would go to Atlantic City. And it was, it was just a lot of fun. And you meet different people. 
And, you know, when everybody's winning, there's no better feeling when everybody's winning. Again, we're not going to become millionaires walking out of the place. And yes, you lose as much as you win, but it is the social aspect and a little bit of the skill. Not that we count cards, but you pay attention, right? And the more attention you pay, even though it's a, it's a game of luck, you can be better at it if you, if you pay attention. So it's really all of the above. That's great. So it started in college, basically, is what you're saying. It did. Oh, that's great. You know, what's also interesting about your background, Gil, is you were born and raised in South Africa. And before we get into, you know, your career, which we are going to, um, would love to know about that upbringing in South Africa. And then frankly, what brought you out to the United States? Growing up in South Africa as a, at that time in the 70s, essentially, as a white middle-class citizen, it was a pretty good thing. You were fairly sort of isolated from the political goings-on. I was, as a kid, didn't understand it, right? It was a pretty good upbringing because the way the society was, and believe me, I know, we know how unjust it was, but as a kid, you led quite a privileged life and you didn't have to be particularly wealthy to, to live that life. And it was a beautiful place, you know, and you had access to everything as a white person in that society. And then over time, you sort of, you know, you reach a certain age and you kind of realize, wait, the black people aren't where we are, you know, and you sort of start to get a sense of what's going on around you. And then you, you learn about apartheid and you sort of say, gee, this is really not a, not a great place. And then you learn about the world and then you learn that South Africa is the only place that, that does that, right? And so as you get older, I was 17 or about 17 when I left. My brother and sister were much significantly older than I am. I hope they don't listen to the podcast. But <laughs> Well, I hope they do. <laughs> Uh, and they had left and come to the U.S. They'd been fortunate enough to immigrate uh, appropriately to the U.S. And so by the time it came to me, my parents said, let's get you there to get you educated. My brother and sister had been educated in South Africa, one a doctor, one an accountant, had to come to the U.S. and basically requalify, redo their boards and so on. So by the time it came to me, third time's a charm. Hey, let's get him there and get him educated if we can. And that's what happened. So my parents drove me, pushed me to come to the U.S., get educated here so I wouldn't have to, quote unquote, retake a bunch of things to qualify to do whatever it was I was going to do. And my parents wanted to get out. It was an unjust society. They weren't happy there. They didn't. We didn't know what the end would be. Interestingly, I am Jewish. And so there was no generation of our family born, born and died, I should say. So my grandparents were not born there, but died there. My parents were born there and one has passed here and one will pass here. And then me born there and obviously not going to die there. It's just a very sad circumstance that it was so transient in in, in the scheme of things. Do you still have family out in, in South Africa then, Gil? I do, but not too close. So my immediate family is all in the US and then in some cases spread other places in the world. What's the bifurcation like? I mean, you mentioned you growing up in the 70s and 80s in a very one-sided environment? Has it improved at all over there? Or are you even you know, paying attention at this point? I pay a little bit of, I've never been back in 35 years. I was going to go, I had a family trip planned at the end of last year, which obviously because of COVID, we didn't do. And we hope to do that maybe the end of next year. So we don't lose our deposits. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I do want to go back. I had no real reason to go back, no compelling reason. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I integrated pretty well and pretty quickly into U.S. society. I never really looked back. My parents went back a couple times 
And then they too, you know, didn't really look back. So obviously it changed from white minority rule to black rule. And when Nelson Mandela took over, I, I think my own view is that was probably the best five years of South Africa ever because he was not a vindictive guy. He didn't hold grudges. It was unbelievable that he took over and he said, you know, the way to bring society together isn't for me to get revenge against the white man. It's to embrace the white man, which is what he did. And he didn't, he did a lot of things to bring society together. He was an old man by that time. So he could only serve one term. And as I understand it, his successor, like a lot of parts of Africa, his successor was not half the man he was. And so corruption ensued, society deteriorated. They had an AIDS problem that never was the way it was in the US when AIDS first happened, but became a problem in South Africa much later. And sort of government services deteriorated, not because of incompetence, but because of corruption. So I think in many ways, it is a better place because the majority does rule and they do get to elect their leaders. But I think from a quality of life standpoint, maybe not as good as, as it was even when I grew up there, which is unfortunate. It's a very interesting background. And you know, you mentioned your career and we're going to get there in a, in a second. But with each and every interview I do uh, with my guests, Gil, I ask a few standard questions. And the first one is always how these executives, athletes, celebrities, how you start your day. I think it's very important for the listeners to understand how different folks start their day. Some are extremely organized and structured. Some are complete wreck and somewhere in between. I would love to hear how you typically start your day, Gil. It starts the same every day within a half an hour. So either at 6 a.m. or 6.30, I'm on email. And I do that depending on the day, depending what else is going on. I'm not, my day is, that beginning part of my day adjusts to when I've got my first meeting and I try not to schedule my first meeting, if it's by choice, you know, not till 10 a.m. And is that, Gil, I'm totally interrupting you there, but is that straight straight to email, not even a cup of coffee? Nothing. Straight to really? email. Really? Got up it, okay. Email. All right, no coffee, got it. Up into email because I'm stressed about what's going on. It's just, I can't, you know, so I get to it, get it done. Um, I, I'm on there for about an hour, hour and a half, depending on the day. And then if it's an exercise day, then I go and do that. Then I shower up and go into the office. And so there are days where I don't get in, well, pre-COVID, and, and I'm starting to get back in now, that I don't get in till close to 10. But by the time I'm in, I will have done an hour or an hour and a half of work already and maybe taken a couple calls. Some days I'm not fortunate enough to have that luxury because it's an 8 a.m. call and it's a group call or it's a client or whatever. So whatever the day is, if, if I've got something starting at 8 a.m., I will allot a time to have an hour on email, right? So I'll just get up earlier. Doesn't mean I'll go to bed earlier. But the first thing I do every day is email. Sometimes there's stuff from the day before. If I had a, a dinner the night before, I couldn't get everything done. I'm programmed to get through the important, not the junk, but the important stuff. At least see what's there and see if there's anything I need to intervene on that I don't like the way it's going or somebody needs help. That's that's the reason I do that. And then I'm long before COVID and long before flexible working, I'm not stressed about when I get in. I'm reachable. I'm 24-7. Everybody knows my cell phone number. Nobody's dependent on me physically in the office. I like working in the office and my assistant is here and the number of our people are here. And obviously that's important, but I don't stress about it. I take care of business, usually for people on the East Coast. Then I get my exercise. And if it's not an exercise day, then I just you know get ready quicker and come in. What's a typical exercise day look like for you? So pre-COVID, it was to the gym. And I would I'm mostly focus on cardio, elliptical. When I was younger, it was I would run on the treadmill. Pre-COVID, because I haven't been going to the gym, I'll tell you about my COVID workout. 
But pre-COVID, I would do the treadmill a couple of days and maybe the elliptical one. Now I do the elliptical two and the treadmill one usually uh, because my knees can't take the treadmill as much. And funnily enough, the elliptical is softer on them. So I do the cardio and then I will, I lift weights, but you would laugh, right? Because I do do a little bit. <laughs> I don't think I would laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, some would laugh and it's a little social. I know people in the gym. And so I've been there for about an hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes, something like that. And then shower up. Well, now I'll have to go home and shower. The gym's not too far. I won't be showering in the gym for a while when I do go back because of COVID. But I, I eventually, I think it'll get back to normal. So that's the routine. And then on the weekends, I my main form of exercise, it might be the gym one day, but I have a big German shepherd and I, I walk hills with the, with the shepherd. So I do about an hour and a half walk on Saturday and Sundays. That's great. When you're doing these walks, Gil, are you, because you're so busy. I mean, you just mentioned you wake up, it's immediate email. On these walks, are you listening to music? Is it nothing? Is it brainless? Or are you still? It's me and her. It's the most, I never grew up with a dog. My wife did. And my wife grew up with shepherds. And when they said to me, the kids, everyone, look, it was, I, we're getting the dog or you're out kind of thing. You're getting, you're getting the dog. <laughs> right. She's a beautiful dog. She was, you know, pure and all that. And she, I'm like, okay, fine. We'll get the dog. And now, of course, I'm the biggest fan of the dog, right? And it's it's because it, it is unconditional love. I don't know if you have dogs or not or experience with I have, them. I have a mini golden doodle that was supposed to be 25 pounds. And now she's 56 <laughs> pounds. It's unbelievable. So it's, you know, that relationship, right? Which is not like a human relationship. And then the other thing is, you said it, it's my time to just free think, right? And so I can think about anything and everything. I don't listen to music. I just listen to nature and we walk and it's probably, I don't know, it could be between two, two and three miles, I suppose, is what we do. And I don't talk to her. She doesn't talk to me, but we walk and I greet people. Yeah. Talk to the dog. Okay. You're CEO, of, you're CEO of a major corporation. Really, you're talking to your dog. Uh, you know, people do that, right? And to me, it's it's really about unwinding. That's great. Thank you for that. I want to get to your career now. And I know you started the early years with Arthur Anderson. Um, and I believe you left there in 97. So well before the, the Enron, Arthur Anderson scandal. But your first controller and then subsequently, I believe your CAO, Chief Accounting Officer job, was not in commercial real estate. It was at the Dole Food Company. And... Would love to hear, I mean, at that point, you're, I believe, 31 years old. You're stepping in and looking over a $4.5 billion book of business at Dole Food. How did they find you or how did you find them? So first of all, in hindsight, I had no business having that job. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> but here's what happened. And it was this was very formative. So I worked for Arthur Anderson. And in those days, and I, you know, my father said to me, Go be an accountant and then you can do whatever you want, but you can always go back and do tax returns. Little did he know I never did a tax return in my life because I was on the audit side. But I did that and I had some major clients, one of which was Dole. And in those days, you could go work for clients. That changed after Enron and after Sarbanes-Oxley. They had to be a cooling off period and so forth. You couldn't go work for a client. You just audited. But in 1997, you could. So Dole was a big client of mine. One of the guys from Arthur Anderson had gone to work there and he hired me. So I went to be manager of reporting. He, no sooner did I come work there, he left for another bigger gig. And there I was at Dole Foods. And it was pretty chaotic in the accounting finance department. There was a kind of a revolving door. We had one CFO after another. And the controller job became vacant. And my wife at the time, I, she was my fiance, I think, encouraged me to ask for that job. 
I had very good relations at Dole. I've always been a hard worker, and we can talk about my philosophy around hard work because I think it'll be interesting to the listeners perhaps to talk about that separately. But I worked hard. The people that mattered respected that. I asked for the job, and then I had to go interview with David Murdoch. David Murdoch, not to be confused with Rupert Murdoch, was the majority owner or a significant owner of Dole Foods. And also the Castle and Cook Company, which was a subsidiary of Dole that owned a bunch of land and hotels and apartments, predominantly in Hawaii, which is where Dole's history was. It was owned through this subsidiary. And uh, Mr. Murdoch was everything you'd expect from a billionaire, cantankerous, brilliant. And this was the thing that worked in my favor. He was totally colorblind, age blind. He was all about meritocracy, right? So the fact that I was 32 and he was approaching 80 didn't matter to him. And so he offered me the job. And it was a one-man show. If he offered me the job, that was it. The board was public. There was a board. It was a stacked board in those days. You could do that. Good people on it. Don't get me wrong. They were solid people. A guy like Dick Ferry from Corn Ferry was on that board. And that was that caliber. But David owned a third of the company. And the board were mostly people he knew. And, and so it wasn't hard for him to make those kind of decisions. And then I had a performance. I think I did okay, but I was definitely... I was in over my head from a management standpoint, right? From the technical accounting, I could do that. But from a management standpoint, I was in over my head. But I did that job for several years. And over time, being around someone like David, and then we had a CFO that came in and finally stabilized things, who was a guy by the name of Ken Kay, who I eventually followed to CBRE. I learned a lot about M&A, about banana prices, about Wall Street, about earnings releases, and about flying private planes. <laughs> so interesting. So at that point, I mean, admittedly, it was kind of a fake it till you make it situation for you at, at Dole. I mean, you were, you said, in over your head, you're very young age, and you're, you're stuck with this book, but you, you figured it out. I guess with that note, I mean, this is your show, Gil. If we want to talk about hard work, let's talk about hard work. I would love to hear what you want to share with the listeners about your philosophy there. Thank you. So I think I am not a guy that plans too far ahead. I'm not a guy that thinks too far ahead about what the next job is going to be or what it should be or what I'd like it to be. And that's paid off pretty well. And I, if there's something I can impart to up and coming you know, leaders, I always say them focus on the job that you're in, the rest will happen. That's not to say you ought to you know, put your head down and never think about what you want to do next or where, you, where things might lead. But the problem is if you're too focused on where you're going and not focused enough on where you are, you just won't perform as well. So for example, at Arthur Anderson, I always thought I would be a partner. Thank God it didn't pan out that way because of what happened to them, right? But I, when I was there, I figured I'm going to be a partner. Then Dole recruited me. I said, all right, I'm controller. Well, maybe I'll be CFO of Dole one day. Didn't give it much thought. Then someone recruited me over to CBRE. And eventually I was CFO there. But when I was controller there, I never thought I'd be CFO. I mean, it was a possibility. And I just worked really hard. I was, I, you know, I, I've always am available. I pay attention to detail. I go above and beyond to ensure that things get done right, at least as I think they should be done. I may not always be right, but to the best of my ability. And, I, you know, I don't have a lot of hobbies. All right, you brought up blackjack. Okay, but I don't play that that often. I don't golf, not saying it's right or wrong. I played it a little bit, but it took a lot of time. And so when I had kids, I stopped doing that and maybe I'll take it up one day. Obviously, I do try to keep an exercise routine and spend time with friends and family and colleagues, right? Work colleagues. And I thoroughly enjoy the time I get to mentor people, which in my position I do get to do. And it's just interesting to, to meet people from different walks of life. It's part work, part social, but that's about it, right? It's, I'm very 
work focused. And Jay Hennick, our CEO, said to me, I'm always on, Gil. And I realized as CEO of a major division, I'm also always on, right? I just am. I can relax, but I'm always on. That's my primary focus. And I'm watching reruns with my daughter of West Wing. Do you remember that show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so there's the chief of staff, Leo, Leo McGarry. And his marriage runs into trouble. Mine has not. So let's not read anything into that. No. <laughs> but he says to his wife, I need to do this the time I'm in this job, right? This has to be my central focus, which she couldn't accept. Thankfully, my wife has known no different in the 20 years that we've been married, right? I've always... Work has been a major priority, not at the expense of my family. I wouldn't say that because I've tried to be at all the important things. But as one of my other CEO friends would say to me, it's not like I'm going to get Father of the Year award either. <laughs> okay, got it. Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that, Gil, not the Father of the Year part, about the CEO and, and vision, because I would assume if I'm clicking on the Rami Zaid show and I see Gil Barak, CEO, immediately when I think CEO, it's this visionary, doesn't get into the weeds, is long-term vision, thinking, planning, everything, and has the team to execute kind of the day-to-day. And it's almost, it seems like the antithesis for you. It's let's accomplish what is now and the rest will take care of itself in the future. That's perceptive. And I, I said that more about my own career. But I am a tactical CEO. You you are picking up on something there because it's kind of like I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, right? So so when you show's over. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So when you don't as a manager let Clayton Kershaw pitch game six of the World Series because you're saving him for game seven, you're never gonna get to game seven, most likely, right? So what's the point? I have a bit of that philosophy, right? So we got to get through today. And Collier's US, the history is such that that it wasn't a global, it wasn't a platform in the US. Globally, it was different. And we were, it was built through acquisition in many cases and partnership. And what we're doing here is standardizing and creating a bit more accountability to the central platform because we believe that that's going to make us better. And, and I firmly believe it's going to make us better in the long run. So the moment in time requires me to be a little more tactical than strategic, right? Or, or spend more time than the average CEO might spend on tactical because we got to get through today and this year. And that was the same thing at Dole Foods. And it was to some degree the same thing at CBRE in the early years that I was there as we were building the company. But you're right. Mostly CEOs, and I don't fault them. It's a style thing. And it's a also where you are and where the company that you're at, you know, or the duties that you have, where are they in their evolution? Uh, you can be more strategic if you're sitting today as the CEO of Google, right? Because there are lots and lots of people executing on yesterday's strategy today, so to speak. I have not found myself in those situations and maybe I haven't looked for those situations because I am so hands-on. I want to go back to Dole and you jumped over to CB Richard Ellis. So you are Dole Food Company. You go over to a commercial real estate company and now you mentioned Kenneth K, CFO, who pulled you over. And I believe Kenneth's now over at MGM Studios as a, a CFO. Correct. So why did you make that jump? It's a great question. I had just started my MBA at UCLA, the executive MBA, when Ken left. And Ken had been my executive sponsor. And I knew that with him out of the picture, things would heat up at Dole. They did every time we lost the CFO. And I was young and I wasn't maybe as, I mean, it turned out fine, right? But I was I was nervous about that. So I actually approached him and said, if there was a position, then I would be interested. And a few months later, there was, and it was control of 
CBRE, he'd made his determination about the incumbent and asked, you know, we made a deal for me to come over. And so it was a comfort thing. But I do remember this. And I have great respect for Ken. And he was a great mentor. He looked after me really, really well as a boss, one of the best. But there was an assistant to Mr. Murdoch, a lady by the name of Roberta Wyman that I had gotten close to. I still see her from time to time now retired. And Roberta and Dick Ferry both counseled me not to go. And they and Dick, of course, knows everything about that there is to know about careers, right? He started Corn Ferry. And they both counseled me not to go because they said, this is your opportunity to become your own person. With all due respect to Ken, I don't know what history would have been. As I said, turned out fine, more than fine, right? But today I might have heeded that advice. I didn't know enough to heed it at that time. So Ken was comfortable. He had been really good to me, paid me well. He mentored me. You were choosing between two good choices, right? I didn't have to leave Dole and I didn't have to go to CBRE. So I chose to go to CBRE and we had, I don't know, Ken and I were there together five great years. And then when he left, I then got the opportunity to be CFO of CBRE. So it was not a bad bet. I was choosing between two good bets. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, frankly, your entire career, you have chosen between a lot of good bets besides, I guess, blackjack, which you lost your ass on. But I'm now fast forwarding to your current job at Collier's and you spent 15 years at CB Richard Ellis. And I think just like my last question of the hop from Dole to CB, why, you know, CBRE being a behemoth in the globe in commercial real estate, why make the jump from CBRE to Collier's? It's because it's the behemoth in, in some ways. Let me explain. So I was CFO at CBRE, and then I was part of a reorg that basically took me from the number one position to the number two position in finance at CB. And I got a very handsome retention package to stay. I was treated with great respect. I loved the company. I loved working there, and I loved the ride up, right, for the 15 years that I was there because we did a lot of acquisitions. It was a lot of fun. The people were, were good people. And it you know it was very, very good to me. Even when I was reorged, it was done with the greatest of respect. And so I always appreciated it. But the fact is, I realized when I was reorged that I had hit a ceiling. And I knew I started looking a little bit when I first was reorged. I had a three-year deal that I don't think I would have been asked. Well, I know I wasn't asked to leave because I stayed longer than the three years, but there was a pot of money at the end of the three years if I stayed. And I did. And I collected the money. And after the first year, it sort of didn't make sense to leave. It didn't make financial sense to leave. And it wasn't bad. I was doing fine. But I knew, you know, I probably could have retired at CB, earning a good living, doing what I did, but it wasn't that fulfilling at that point. I'd, I'd reached, it's kind of like being the head coach of what? Notre Dame? And then go to South Carolina, like Lou Holtz did. It's just not the same. So I felt like I was Lou Holtz at Notre Dame. And then I was like Lou Holtz at South Carolina. And so with due respect to South Carolina, because actually did some good stuff there, but I digress. So I started looking and I actually, I think I can say this. I actually had an offer, a phenomenal offer from Universal Music Group, which was totally Cody not up my alley. A good friend of mine runs the CFO practice still at Spencer Stewart. You'll look him up. You'll know who he is. Uh, introduced me to that role. And we were, we were on the one-yard line. And at that time, they were owned by Vivendi. And Vivendi, they had a CFO who was going to go and do something different. And Vivendi kiboshed that something different. And so that CFO remained in his job. But those were the coolest people because I thought to myself, like this was totally new for me. It was the music industry at a time when the music industry was in transformation. Spotify was actually the big news at the time, believe it or not. And how would they take that library and capitalize on it and so forth? And I said to myself, man, if I can come work here, I can look cool wearing jeans and a shirt tucked in. 
because I could never pull that off. Those guys could pull it off. And that was a big motivator to want to go there. Anyway, it didn't pan out. And so then I stopped looking because at that point, it was lucrative to stay at CB. Funnily enough, I think my contract with CBRE, my agreement ended in March of 17 with CBRE. I had talked to the Collier's folks when I was first reorg, Dylan Taylor, and I had spoken at John Fredrickson's introduction. John as CFO knew me from investor conferences, as did Jay. And I had spoken with him, I think in 2014, but there was no fit. And ironically, in 2017, about two months after my agreement with CB was over, and I'm sort of thinking I could do this, but I should look for something else. John called me or emailed me and said, can we have a drink? We were both going to be at a conference in New York. And I think I said to John, look, if you're buying, I'll have a drink with you, right? As long as we do it at the peninsula. Spoken like a true CFO. If you're buying, I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And one thing led to another. But the great thing about John and Jay, because that's who really drove me coming here. And I then, you know, I had to go and meet with them in Toronto because Jay likes people to come and see him. Understandably, right? You're really serious. Come see me. So we had lunch scheduled for two hours. I think the three of us sat there for four hours. But the, the thing that I loved about Collier's, there's lots that I love, but what they espoused and what's panned out for the most part is they were going to give me an opportunity to become COO. They were going to take a bet on me that what I'd learned as CFO of the behemoth, I could translate into being a good chief operating officer for the US. So they would give me an opportunity, CB would not, which is to go into operations. And then there was obviously departures and I had to be patient. And I went from COO to CEO when that position you know, became available after Dylan Taylor left. And I don't look back, right? For a variety of reasons, including the opportunity I was given to do what I do. And actually, I think I do it okay. More importantly, Jay Hennig thinks I do it okay. And as long as he thinks I do it okay, that's good, uh, really good. And then the culture, right? The culture is very different and it's very, I'm very cognizant of the culture, but I'm happier coming in every day that I've come in at Collier's versus the last number of years at CB. Again, with due respect to CB and really because I'd hit a ceiling there and this type of door wasn't going to open for me there. Just in this conversation alone, your career, your business career has been on this 110 mile an hour fast track, which is actually, it's completely admirable. And you just mentioned it, December of 2019, you get promoted to CEO of Collier's right before a global pandemic. So great fucking timing on your end, Gil. Um, but I say that because you become chief executive officer, then you're hit with this pandemic and you're going 100, 110 miles an hour. And all of a sudden the world throttles back on you. Can you take us back to that time? And it's not that long ago, but March of April of 2020, your chief executive officer, not only of a global company, not only looking over the United States, but this is affecting the commercial real estate world as a whole. I guess what is going through your head, again, being a tactical CEO? So a couple things that help, just that, right? So, so don't look out too far, number one. Number two, I was CFO of CBRE during the great financial crisis in 08, 09, right? So interim CFO and then CFO. So my timing, as you said, always sucks <laughs> because I literally managed, Ken K had left in the middle of the crisis and I became interim CFO and it was, it was not fun. Gil, I, I see these as opportunities for you to excel. That's how I look at it. Right? <laughs> yeah, if you can excel, that's good, right? If you yeah, don't, right. you know, you know, you know the rest. What happens, right? So when the pandemic hit, my philosophy, just in life and in career, and having experienced the great financial crisis, we will get out of this one way or another. 
we'll get out of it. And we just got to survive until we do. And we don't know how long it's going to be. Of course, everything accelerated much more than we thought, which was great. But it was a matter of, okay, you got to get up and you got to deal with what's going on today. And the first thing we had to do was make sure that people were safe and that we closed the offices. And sometimes you just learn every day. Okay, this company's doing that. That company's doing the other. I've got good people around me. They're seeing things. We don't have to be the trailblazers and we don't have to invent the wheel, right? It's being invented around us. We can take the best of what we think is the best of what others are doing, but you are absorbing like a sponge and you're making decisions really quickly. So we did that. And then of course we went into cost containment mode, right? Which is never pleasant because you're affecting people's lives. But you also know as a CEO, as much as you do have to care about people and you do, and you don't do these things easily or without thought, but we had to scale back. Revenue was going away. If we were going to make it through the pandemic in any decent shape, we really had to scale back because we had people here that basically were not doing anything, right? Because there was nothing to do. The revenue went away. So we did that. I think most people understand that that's what big companies are going to do in a pandemic. It doesn't exactly build culture. But one thing we did, the only thing we could do and afford was for those that we let go and those that we furloughed, we continue to pay health benefits. And where we let people go, we paid a handsome severance and I think enhanced health care. We were cognizant of this is not the time to leave people without health care. So at least we did that, didn't feel good about it. And we were very tight. And now look, because of the pandemic, it wasn't like we had to control travel. Nobody was going anywhere. So that was a, okay, you didn't have to put anyone on point to monitor travel. It was just not happening. A lot of entertainment went away, right? So cost savings happened naturally that we didn't even have to go after. We just had to monitor. And then we had to make sure that we were communicating, which we did. When you can come in, when you can't come in, when offices could open, we had to put a process around. When offices could open, when they needed to stay closed, we had to cater to local laws. And as you know, things happen differently in different states and you couldn't tell people in Florida to do what California was doing. So we were quite enterprising in that way because there were mandates that some of our competitors were closed until we're open. And we did it a different way. We said, we're closing, but you can open if you do A, B, and C or if you meet certain metrics. And we did it office by office. And I mean, maybe I would be the last to hear criticism, but everything I heard was we did a pretty good job of it. Not just me, I led, yes, but a bunch of people doing a bunch of work and listening to our people and listening to the local intelligence and sort of formulating. And there's a bit of luck in this, make no mistake. You can't screw it up, right? So there's a bit of, you listen, you make the decisions. And I think in our case, we did pretty well because our offices were open sooner than most of our competitors and they closed quicker than most of our competitors. And so we had our ear to the ground and then you just get up every day and you watch the news and you get a good night's sleep and you do it all over again. And then eventually you start to see, oh, it's not as bad as it was. And you sort of start to see sort of the spring in the air and it passes. I mean, I guess there might be something in the future that doesn't pass, but every crisis historically has. And so the philosophy I always have is it could take a while. Don't look out too far. And especially in that situation, you don't want to look out too far. The, the priority, the strategic priority is getting through the mess that's happening as it's happening. And you just got to keep going. And eventually you get to the other side. Yeah, this too shall pass. Gil, what are the best and worst parts of, about being a chief executive officer? The best part is I answer to one person, to Jay Hennick, and I have a great relationship with him. I've forged a great relationship with him over the last number of years. He's very supportive. He, he's a big critic of mine too, constructive, can be, and that's fine. It's done respectfully and thoughtfully and with my and the U.S.'s best interest at heart. So that works, right? But the freedom that he gives me, the Collier's philosophy of 
operating the regions in a decentralized fashion, right? And not being overbearing means I get to decide a lot, which, you know, after almost 30 years in business, it's really nice to be in that spot. And it's not an ego thing, but it is nice to have people turn to me and say, what do we do, boss? Or what do we do, CEO, I should say, right? And you are expected to have the answer. That's probably the worst part of the job because sometimes you don't have the answer and you have to make the decision. And, you know, I like running fast. I always have because it's my agenda, or at least I'm driving the agenda. I, I can measure how we're doing against that agenda and I can check boxes. And I think we're doing pretty good. Not everybody would agree, but I think we're doing pretty good. That's very fulfilling. So the, the negative or the, or the downside is all the responsibility does rest with you. You got to make the call when sometimes no one else can. That's tough. And we've had some tough situations to deal with, but you know, I've got the experience and I don't know that anyone else has any more experience to, to make a better decision. You just make the best decision you can. And then I will say there are days, not many, but there are days where I'm like, boy, it'd be kind of nice if I could just sleep an extra hour or it'd be kind of <laughs> nice if I could just hang out like a lot of my friends do on a Sunday afternoon instead of I've got a few hours of work to do because I know going into Monday, you know, it ain't going to get better. I have a couple of things I'm, I'm going to pick on you, or I should say pick on you even more, Gil. The first one is a Bloomberg interview you did in October of 2020. That was with Vonnie Quinn. You mentioned that in terms of commercial real estate, pricing was going down, but as things normalized, rents would increase again. Eight months later, we're sitting here today. What really is the state of commercial real estate as far as rents and things normalizing? I don't remember if we were talking about a particular category, but I know it sounds like me because I was beating the drum early on, as I did in 08 and 09, that things revert to a mean right now. That I was right about. <laughs> so let me fight fire with fire. But in terms, in the truth of the matter is, and I think I was referring to office because that was the Right, right. That was the concern, obviously. Nobody knew what industrial would do. We knew it would ma maintain itself, but nobody knew it would accelerate the way it has, right? But I think my comments with Vani were largely around office. And the truth of the matter is that the rack price never really came down, but the incentives did, right? The landlord incentives went up. So the net price did, in fact, go down. And now it is stabilizing. Again, we've got a ways to go in office, but it is stabilizing. So I think I was probably not quite right that rents would drop as subleased space came onto the market. And we've seen a lot of subleased space. That wasn't hard to call then, and that has panned out. But the headline pricing in most major cities didn't drop as much as I thought the incentives went up. And I think we're at the point now, it's going to take a while. Everybody's, you know, just about everybody you talk to that's in a leadership position in an office using company, right, is thinking about how people come back to work. I remember early on at probably around that time where they said remote work may be permanent and, um, you know, people may never come back to the office. I didn't believe that. I didn't buy it. I didn't have science behind it, just experience. And now it turns out we're coming back, but we may not, we are not going to come back in the way, at least for now, in the way we historically used office. And there might be a permanent change. I don't know. A lot of people are saying it is permanent. I don't know. I'm not prepared to commit to that yet. For all I know, we could be back doing it the way we used to do it five days a week at some future point. I personally kind of like this idea of remote work a couple days a week or, or, or at least a day a week. Uh, I think that's been helpful for home life and people's well-being. So some of these things have to be taken really seriously and have to be adopted and then we'll see how it goes. So I think we're through the worst of it for sure. I'd love your opinion on this. I just listened to a recent podcast on Freakonomics Radio titled, Will Work From Home Work Forever? And a quote from a Harvard professor, Raj uh, Chowdhury, who's 
He's like the guru of work from home. He was studying this before even the pandemic hit. He had a quote that said, work from anywhere allows companies to hire from anywhere and create a more inclusive workforce based on gender and based on disabilities. Do you agree with that as a whole? I agree with that, but with a caveat, right? Because on the other side of that is Bill Rudin of Rudin Management, one of the largest landlords in New York, saying work from work. And that's true too. So I agree, yes, it probably it allows more inclusivity, there's no doubt. And it allows you to get probably better or better fitted talent. Because if you are in Illinois and you want to hire tech people on the West Coast and you hire them remotely, you know, you've got a bigger pool. I think you've got a bigger pool. So so there is truth to that. But then there's the flip side, which is the loss of, which I do believe is true, loss of collaboration, loss of promoting company culture, loss in my mind, I think even of discipline, right? The discipline of dressing up and going into the office. And maybe I'm old fashioned, but I think there's something to that. You know, when I put on a my, my slacks and my shirt used to be a suit, not so much anymore. That's different than when I worked at home. And, you know, on a positive note, there was also a interview you did on Yahoo Finance January of this year, January of 2021. And you said industrial space was red hot at the time, retail, not so much. And I don't want to belabor the negative on COVID and how it's hit commercial real estate. But I do want to ask you, what do you believe are the positives that have come out of COVID in the commercial real estate world? And you can pick on a few sectors if you'd like, Gil, but what are the true positives you feel have come out of this? Yeah, look, I think uh, industrial has clearly benefited, right? And more than we could have anticipated and the move to online shopping and, and the impact that, that that has had, particularly with Amazon, has been nothing anyone could have predicted and obviously very helpful to commercial real estate. And even for categories of real estate that have been suffering, you hear now retail is converting, some retail is converting to other means, including industrial, right? Warehousing. Plus, we have the intersection more than ever before of retail and, in, and industrial in e-commerce, right? So a lot of experts in retail that you talk to will consider industrial space, well, is it industrial or is it retail? So we've got a more of a melding because we've got more e-commerce going on than we ever had before. And I think if you talk to our own expert, Angie Solanke, what she'd tell you, it's all about omni-channel, right? You gotta be in E and you gotta be in bricks and mortar, which means on the retail side, right? It's not as dire as people thought a year ago. And I think that's true. We are seeing some retail expand now because the smart retailers realize it's all about omni-channel, right? So, so industrial has benefited on its own because of, in many cases, consumer demand and bricks and mortar, at least new bricks and mortar, right? Experiential type bricks and mortar retail has benefited. So the mall has to have fun things to do. And, and many of the successful ones do. Many are, especially where the weather allows it, you know, it's indoor, outdoor. That attracts people. And so we've adapted and we and I think like you've heard on many things that the pandemic just accelerated trends, not just, but in many instances, accelerated trends that were already happening, right? And some of these retail industrial trends are absolutely, as a result of the pandemic, were accelerated. If I could, a silver lining, I think, of the pandemic, not necessarily commercial real estate related, and we've talked about this, we have a senior at home about to go off to college. We got a whole nother year with him. Intense. He probably didn't love it as much, but we did. And I think if you like your family, and again, that got tested too, I'm sure, for many, including me at times, you know, there was the silver lining of, we were just talking about the other day, we're a little, out a little bit more now. We've both vaccinated my wife and I, the numbers are really low in LA County. So we've been out a little bit more. 
And we sort of talked about there's less stuff that we were doing at home now, more that we're going out. And there, there was some silver lining to that time at home and less stress about, oh, I got to get, got to go shower and get ready to go out to dinner. We, well, there was none of that, right? All, you know, we were home. So there was, uh, you know, it wasn't all bad, but it was pretty bad. That's great, Gil. So with each of my guests, I, I like to wrap up the show with some fun, rapid fire questions. So if you don't mind, I'm going to let them rip. My first one for you is a favorite quote or quotes. I said on the show many times, and sometimes I'm caught geeking out on quotes. I love them. And you actually mentioned Nelson Mandela. He's got a million of them. One that's always stuck with me is real leaders must be ready to sacrifice for all the freedom of their people. All that said, I'm geeking out again. Are there any quotes or quotes that stick with you, Gil, either today or historically? The one quote, there are many, and I probably can't recall them, but the one that always is always a friend of mine. I use it actually. Maybe you know who said it. I'll tell you if you don't, but it's trust, but verify. And that was Ronald Reagan to Gorbachev when the wall came down and so Dasvidanya in Russian. And that, first of all, because of who it came from, but that one has always stuck with me. You know, I want to believe you, but I'm going to have to look at your numbers, right? Um, and so that's been very informative to me and very top of mind for me in business. That's a great one. Okay, next one. Former CFO, now CEO. What is one thing personally or business, I'll say, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick on personal. What is one thing you do not mind spending money on? A nice vacation. <laughs> I was going to say, man, maybe an hour of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> a nice vacation. <laughs> is there anywhere that you have not been that you want to go to? Oh, yeah. I would love to go to the Maldives. Um, I've read a lot about it and it uh, just looks great. That's definitely on the list. I might even say Bali. My wife and I tend to like vacations where, no surprise, you can slow down and enjoy the sun, right? That's kind of our thing. So there probably are others, but those two come to mind. Well, Gil, if you can get you know executive management to open up an office in Bali, I think you can go down there and open that thing up for them. Okay, my next one is called the walk-up song. So Major League Baseball, you mentioned the Dodgers earlier. I'm a Giants guy, so we won't get into that. But all these Major League Baseball players, they walk up to the plate. They have a song that's playing for them. Gil, what would be your song walking up to the plate with a bat in your hand? I love L.A. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, it's Randy Newman, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. If you could choose a completely different position, so not finance, not chief executive officer, what would it be and why? Yeah, it would be, and I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but I, I think it would be to be a teacher. I don't know if that would be a university professor or high school. I, I don't know, but I, I enjoy mentoring. Teaching is in that broad category of mentoring. And I enjoy watching people learn. I enjoy getting to meet people and to impart knowledge to them. So I think, you know, and, I, and I've been asked that question before, what would you do? I, I probably would be a teacher of some kind. That's a great answer. Okay, next one. What would you do if you were given a free 60-second advertisement slot during the Super Bowl game? Biggest audience in the globe. You have 60 seconds to say whatever you like. What would I say? Say, do, whatever the commercial is. I probably would have some light music going on in the background, and I would tell people to stop feeling sorry for themselves, to work hard, and deliver like a public service message, I think, and to really care about others and to be less self-centered. In Jewish, we say to be a mensch, to be a decent human being. And that would be my message. The reason I say it is because I think people, 
we're very fortunate in this country. Many of us are very fortunate in this country. Somebody doesn't have to lose for us to win, right? And that that's that's what I would espouse. Okay. If you were stranded on an island and could pick any celebrity, dead or alive, to be with you on that island, who would it be and why? I'm going to get myself in trouble, but my wife would know this. It would be Julia Roberts because she's beautiful. Okay. Now, is this Julia Roberts, past Julia Roberts? Yes. Is this Tinker? Okay. This is, yeah. Okay. I got it. <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself, but yes. Uh, that's great. Okay. Last one, Gil, for you. We now call this the ultimate dinner. I used to call this the last dinner, but everyone got mad at me because it was so morbid. But you have your <laughs> ultimate dinner in front of you. There's no consequences tomorrow. So it can be whatever's on that plate or plates. But what is on the plate or plates in front of you? And what would be in the glass for that matter? Okay, that's easy. That would be a New York steak, medium well, string fries, well done, and a Coke. Oh, wow. That was automatic. And now is this at, is this at home or is this a restaurant or... This would be at the Palm. Oh, the Palm. Okay, great. That's a great answer. Oh, good. Gil, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for the hour. I guarantee you I'm going to get some fantastic feedback from the listeners on the wisdom that you've imparted. Is there anything that you'd like the listeners to hear as we sign off here? Uh, not that we haven't covered, I don't think, but I appreciated it as well. And I had a lot of fun and it's, uh, I didn't know, obviously, the questions before. So it's been a bit of an experience for me as well. And I, I hope that it does help your listeners. If it imparts a little bit of knowledge to somebody, solves a problem for somebody or, 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 or makes them feel good about what they're doing, then it was worth the hour. Great way to end it, Gil. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gil Barak. You can find Gil and Colliers on LinkedIn, their NASDAQ ticker, C-I-G-I, or their website at www.colliers.com. You can find me at my website, ramizate.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and I hope you all learned something interesting. Thank you.